You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development. 
this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But... Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. So we'll just recap um, in the first week or the first uh, week that we studied this holiness series, Park talked about how holiness brings purity. Um, so the two words we see in the Bible, the Hebrew, Kadash, and in the New Testament, Hagios, really what they mean is set apart, different or other. And like the video referenced, uh, the analogy with the sun, so different, so incomparable to any, anything else. Um, and that purity isn't just the absence of bad things, but actually the fulfillment of a designated purpose for which we've been set apart. And then when Nick talked about the lesson um, and discussed how holiness brings life, uh, we learned that Isaiah often implies that God is different and more set apart than any other force that people might choose to follow because he is the creator of all life. In Isaiah 43, 15, he says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of your Israel, your king. I think we all carry with us a desire to return to the good old days. Um, even though Ecclesiastes warns us, say not why were the former days better than these, because asking that question isn't coming from a place of wisdom, yet we all do it. <laughs> um, you know, when things were like they were supposed to be, um, we usually do this in a pretty shallow manner. Um, you might see people post things online saying things like, uh, oh, only the kids of the 80s will ever get this. Or, oh, if you know what this is, it means you had a good childhood. Uh, well, the implication being that everyone that has come after is not quite as good as you. <laughs> um, so I was in the Army. And while I was in the Army, um, they had just transitioned our dress uniform from the green uniform that was like a really dark green, which kind of symbolizes the army, to the army service uniform that was blue. It looks really good. I actually, I liked it a lot. Um, 
through for a lot of reasons, you might read about them in the news, you might know about them. Our military branches are struggling. They're, they've had a massive crisis of identity over the past few decades. The top leadership doesn't really know what they're supposed to be doing or who the, each of their branches are even supposed to be. Um, so they've realized they need to try to send a message and explain who they are and what they want to be. So recently, the Army has transitioned that dress uniform, even though it was like 2006 or seven, they went to the blue uniform. They've switched all the way back to the dress uniform that they wore in World War II into the Korean uh, War era. Because if you put that uniform on, it means I'm part of those people who saved the world from the Nazis. It's calling back. Although we know putting on a physical uniform or outward garments isn't quite enough to make the change. It may be a good start, but it's not quite enough to get there. Uh, another example that I'll use from the Army is uh, when I enlisted Let's say just before I enlisted in the army, in the in the era before that, they had a slogan that was probably one of the most misguided taglines the army's ever chosen, an army of one. Even though as soon as you showed up to basic training and they taught you the soldier's creed, a part of it says, I am a warrior and a member of a team. <laughs> but they thought we have to talk to people in the language that they know, and then maybe we can trick them into becoming a member of the team. I'm not sure. At least when I enlisted, their tagline was army strong. That at least kind of makes sense. I can understand that. I can become strong like someone who's in the army if I enlist. Um, so now we're in an area where they're still trying, recruitment's down. They're still trying to find the right message. So they're looking back. In the 80s and 90s, they had a slogan that they felt was really successful. Um, and in that slogan, the army said, be all you can be. Um, so now... They're going back. They've redesigned their artwork and their marketing slogans. And so they're saying the Army wants you to be all you can be. Now, that's not a bad slogan. I, I get it. But it is, it is talking still at the surface level. It's saying uh, it, it's calling us to a higher standard, saying, hey, there's something more that you could be. And if you come join us, you can become that. But it's still out here at the surface, you becoming something. Um, it still relies on your own, uh, your own strength, your own commitment, um, and obviously the success of the organization around you. Um, so I would say if we want to go a little bit deeper, maybe we'd say only the people who were created in this year zero will truly get this. Um, so let's read Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I think in this passage, we see the secret to so many agonizing debates and soul searching. What is our purpose? If we know this, then we know what restoration will look like. We've been called to reflect God's image as we bring order to the world. I think all of our pain and confusion can be traced back to this. We are poor reflections of his image 
who have lost control of our domain. So I challenge us to take a cue from the army and look back to find our future. If I had to create a slogan for all of humanity to convince them to enlist in this mission of restoration, maybe I would say, be all you were created to be. So let's look at Isaiah. Um, Dwayne already read one of the verses. Let's read that whole segment that we learned about in the video. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. So Isaiah was purified by contact with this coal. And then he was sent on a mission. Keep that image of the coal purifying Isaiah in your minds as we read Matthew 9, uh, 1 through 7. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Jesus touched impurity and purified it, burning away any ritual uncleanness with his touch. And we see from his words that he was burning away any moral impurity as well. As he often told those he healed, your sins are forgiven. Or he would say, sin no more. And just as Isaiah was sent with a purpose after being purified, Jesus often told those he healed to go, to fulfill a new mission with their lives. Being purified or being made holy is to be sanctified or set apart for a purpose. I would like us to just meditate again on that image of Jesus as the coal in Isaiah's vision. His touch cured bodies. It closed up blood vessels, restored muscles and tendons, would cleanse scales and boils, opened up optic nerves. But that's not even the beginning of what his touch can do. Picture in your mind death as a dark, cloudy presence encompassing all of humanity since the fall an ever-present threat, a promise of ending and darkness and loneliness, an undeniable power that none can escape. Much of the ritual uncleanness detailed in Leviticus stemmed from contact with death, 
of individual cells from our bodies or whole bodies. And God's plan had no room for death because he is life. So picture death in all of its ingloriousness, finally grasping hold to the Son of God, the very embodiment of life and purity itself. And imagine if you can, Jesus as that bright, hot, burning coal with the holy fury of all the stars of the universe infusing light into that darkness. See the dark cloud burned into a sheet of white as Jesus purified the most impure of all forces. Where death had stood as a symbol of separation from God's purpose, from our relationship with others and to him, it now stands for all time and eternity as a portal of restoration and union with him. Paul, I believe, saw this in his heart when he wrote, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Now, to understand what's wrong with the world, what is missing, what is broken, and what needs to be restored, I think we can look at the Ten Commandments for some clues. Consider the themes underlying each command. By breaking a commandment, we are either betraying a relationship with another person or our relationship with God. So at the deepest level, each commandment is really about pursuing a proper relationship with God. Because if we break a relationship with someone who's created in the image of God, I think if we steal from one of his, stealing from him, if we wound one of his, we're wounding him. And if that's so, it means that true restoration is restoring those relationships in the journey to deepening our relationship with God. Jesus said that serving someone in need is the same as serving him. And in the middle of the book of Genesis, we find Jacob in turmoil and fear over the many relationships he destroyed in his life. He was about to face his brother Esau, who had every right to hurt him. But then he spent the night face to face wrestling with God. The result was a peace that led to a renewed relationship with his family. The relationship with his brother was restored after he had spent a hard night dealing with his relationship with God. Peter wrote an incredibly useful guide to help us pursue a stronger life of faith in 2 Peter. He told us to supplement faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, then knowledge, then self-control, then patient endurance or steadfastness, then godliness, then brotherly affection. And last, he listed the hardest one, agape or unconditional love for everyone. At the culmination of a restored life is a restored love and compassion for all who are made in God's image. Now, as we've studied this series and also our walk through the Bible series previously, we've talked often of the temple and its centrality as God's presence to his people. Of course, this temple wasn't present before the fall, and Jesus made it clear that it would no longer be needed after he took its role. These next verses demonstrate how Christ has assumed the focus of God's presence on earth and how he has in turn chosen to direct it outward toward his people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, 
19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And also in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Among Ezekiel's writings, he records a promise to the priests, which all humans were originally called to be and have been restored to through Christ. And he says to them, in Ezekiel 44, 28, this shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. Can you comprehend the astonishing promise in that statement? I am their inheritance. I think we often focus on the restoration of our own selves to a state of righteousness or morality that puts us back where we belong. But I think we often forget that being all about relationship, this restoration brings the promise of God being with us again. Just as God has the right to call on our relationship when he sends us on a task, he says, I am their possession. As we return to our proper position in creation, walking alongside him as we renew a relationship where we can call on him just as readily as he calls on us. Now, in the video, we heard about the vision Ezekiel had of a restored city, imagery of a temple whose life-giving holiness flowed outward into the whole world. So let's connect that passage to our study of creation, as well as our lessons on recreation that we have found through Jesus. Let's start in Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. We'll read that whole section. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river, very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Enaglame, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. 
But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Let's read Genesis 2, 8 through 15. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, Jesus united that figurative vision in Ezekiel with the physical description in Genesis in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. As restored priests called to be a part of the Holy of Holies, we not only tend the garden, but in fact become life-giving vessels of his presence to others. As I worked in my yard last week in the spring weather, I realized that we may never be closer to our original purpose than when we are attending to our own homes, bringing order and life to the plants and creatures there, and weaving close relationships with our families, creating beauty as the Spirit gives us imagination and love. Now listen to these final words Ezekiel recorded as he continued reporting about the restored world. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. This is what a restored world, a restored people, and a restored you can say. The Lord is here. So carry your new name with joy today. The Lord is here.